Lots of things in life don't happen the way they're supposed to, don't they? Do you have that experience or is it just me? Do you have the experience that thinking to yourself, maybe complaining to others, maybe complaining to God, it wasn't supposed to be that way. It wasn't supposed to be like this. And there, there's an age-old question, the philosophical term for it is theodicy, that if God is good and God is in control, God is sovereign. If God is those two things, God is good and God is sovereign, and we as Christians would affirm both of those. God is omnipotent. omnipotent. God can do anything. So, if God is all-powerful, if God is sovereign over all the affairs of the earth, and God is good, why does a good God allow evil to occur? Have you ever wondered about that? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Maybe not in philosophical terms like that. Maybe it was much more personal. Last week we had Scotty Wharton, his wife Emily, and they they um, were recently married because both of them, in different circumstances, recently lost, in the last few years, lost their first spouses. They were both actively serving in ministry. In fact, Bev Warden had been a missionary with Scotty overseas for some 20 years in the hardest places to be a missionary. This wasn't some cakewalk like we did in South Africa. We were off in an isolated place and it was wonderful and they grew pineapples there. No, this was... This was in, in difficult Middle Eastern countries that they ended up being expelled out of because of their testimony for the gospel. And yet, in the midst of that kind of faithful, faithful service to the Lord, doing a good thing in a hard place, she is diagnosed with cancer and in short order is gone. Why is the things like that? If God is good and God is sovereign, why do things like that happen? You've questioned that maybe in relation to your own job. Maybe in relation to your own family. If God is good and if God is in control, then why would this have happened? And why does it have that effect and that cause and, and that cost to it? And it won't let up. It won't end. Maybe it's a situation in your family that there, there has been brokenness and, or unfaithfulness. If God is good, and I've tried to be good, I thought God was going to take care of, and yet there's this. Have you ever, have you ever wondered those kind of things? I'm afraid we would say no. Because we easily want to paper them over. We easily want to say, no, no, it's okay. I'm all right. I understand God is God, is God and he is sovereign and I will trust him. And, and, and sometimes we will deny our faith the exercise of the questions. The, the, the prophet sermon that I have before me today in the book of Habakkuk, again, we're, we're in a series. Your, your notes, I think, uh, have the title, Best Sermons Ever, and they're not mine. They're somebody else's. And, and I want us to look again at that message, and what was it? What about it? What, what was there? As we look at the prophet Habakkuk, 
There's something there. In fact, there's more of there's more of something in how he delivers this message, which is very unusual, than uh, than than uh, just the things that he says. This sermon is different. This sermon, most sermons are monologues, right? I talk, you listen. One person speaks. One word. Log is the. It comes from the Greek word logos, word, the word. Jesus was the logos, the word. Uh, monologue, mono means one, so one word, one person speaking, a monologue. Habakkuk's sermon is a dialogue. The monologue becomes a dialogue, but the dialogue is not with his audience. We could do that too. We could have a little interactive going on. I could, I could ask questions. You could shout answers, and that's kind of fun. It gets a lot of hand when you ask a rhetorical question, and there's all kinds of answers that pop up that can get awkward, but... The dialogue in the book of Habakkuk is with God himself. And Habakkuk raises questions. And a lot of times we raise questions we want God to answer, but we don't expect him to. Here in the book of Habakkuk, God does. And like I said, in the sermon is the greatest message. The sermon itself and how he does that, but I don't want to spoil the end, so we'll get there as we get there. But first of all, the issue that's before us, the issue that presents is how can I trust God when God doesn't do what I would expect? What I would expect based on who God is. God is good and God is sovereign. So God who is sovereign ought to then cause good and promote good. And there should be good upon the earth which is under his domain. And yet there is not. And so when we come to to the book of Habakkuk, and if you're using a pew Bible, you'll find us on page, I think, 785. The book of Habakkuk, it's a short little prophetic book, so we're going to go through the whole book, and um, let me give you a little bit of background, because the background connects from there to here. The, um, the book of Habakkuk is written probably at the very last years, last 20 years or so of the kingdom of Judah, before Babylon carries them away into captivity. Now, Habakkuk would have known the good King Josiah, who, who, who was responsible for leading a great revival. He turned people's hearts back to the Lord, and he opened up the temple again. He cleaned out all the rubbish that was there, and they, they found the book of God's law, and they, and they, they tore their garments, and they, they, they grieved before the Lord for how they had not kept his word. And they turned to it again. The King Josiah, a young king, led a grand revival in Israel in his generation. Um, King Josiah was pro-Babylonian. Now, that seems funny to think of when Babylon ends up being the country that carries away Judah into captivity, but I'll get there. He was pro-Babylonian because Babylon was the new power that was rising and was the answer to Assyria, and the Assyrians were horrible. And the Assyrians had already taken away northern Israel. And the Assyrians had already surrounded Jerusalem under King Hezekiah, and they'd already done horrendous things. And so the Babylonians now have been raised up by God, and they are putting down the Assyrians. That's why Josiah was, pro, was pro-Babylonian. And, and, and so when, when the Egyptians are coming up to attack Babylon, well, they have to come through Israel to do it. And Josiah says, no, 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 no. The Babylonians are my friend. I'm not going to let you. And he goes out to meet them in battle. And King Josiah, the good king, the godly king, is killed in battle standing up for his friends, the Babylonians. And those that trusted God said, God, why did this happen? And it goes from bad to worse. Well, one of King Josiah's sons, who would be like him, is put on his throne by the people, but 
the Egyptians, after they've killed the king, they get to choose their own king, right? That's just the way it works. And so they come back to Jerusalem, and three months later, they establish one of the other brothers who is a very wicked man. They establish him as king, and he's king because Egypt made him king, and so he's loyal to Egypt. And there's a huge tax burden put upon the people. The the nation is full of corruption. During this time, because they have departed now from the revival to the Lord and all of that has been abandoned, there are raiding parties. The Moabites attack, the Syrians attack, some Chaldeans attack, because now Judah is aligned with somebody else. They're aligned with Egypt. And so there's all this going on that makes it hard for the common people. Things are going on in the corridors of power, and and as it it happens, uh, they had a saying in Africa, when the elephants fight, it's the grass that gets trampled. The elephants come out of it okay. They seem to, by and large. It's the grass that gets trampled. And so it is with most countries where there's this rampant corruption, and yet the people on the top are somehow, they know who to side with, and they're, they're making out okay, but the rest of the population is in, a, is in a desperate place. And crime is rampant, and corruption is rampant, and those who are at the top continue to grab and steal and use even the situations of the day and the laws as they are to take from somebody else and to to continue to pull it in around themselves, to enrich themselves at the cost of others. That's what, that what was, that's what was happening. That's what Habakkuk is seeing when he writes these words in Habakkuk chapter 1, beginning of verse 2. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or I cry to you violence and you will not save? Why do you make me to see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? You see it, but God, you don't do anything about it. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, so the law is paralyzed. And justice never goes forth. The wicked surround the righteous so that justice goes forth perverted. The law is not being followed. The law is not being applied. The gracious and merciful provisions and the protections that were in the law are being ignored and trampled upon. And law is being twisted and misused as a stick to beat people with and to, and to steal from them instead. He who has the gold is making the rules. That's Habakkuk's complaint. It's a fair complaint. How can I trust you, God, if you're not doing what I would expect that you should do? There's a, there's a simple theology here. God is in control, and God is good, and this is bad. So, God, where are you? There's a simple the- but the problem with the simple theology is it doesn't answer complex questions. We have a saying. I, I, mean, I think most people that take psychology hear this. Take that intro to psychology class. You, 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 um, you take an introduction to psychology somewhere in your BA degree, and when you do, uh, you know just a little bit. And, and, and normally people halfway through their introduction to psychology class, they're now analyzing their, um, they're analyzing their roommate. They've got them figured out. They know why they do. They know how mixed up and confused they are, and they're able to put them into whatever psychological category they just learned about. You know just enough to be dangerous, okay? That, it can be that way with theology as well. It can be that way with what we know about God if we know a little, just enough to be dangerous perhaps to ourselves. We know a little, but only a little. 
we can actually be dangerous to our own faith by not pressing in further, even in the midst of a hard question. Habakkuk shows us how to know more. Habakkuk shows us how to press in deeper. So we heard his complaint, and God answers in verse 5. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. Now remember those terms that I read, violence, iniquity. There's wrong, there's destruction and violence, strife and contention. The justice has been perverted. Remember those. That's what's going on in Judah. Habakkuk is complaining about, and God answers. Look among the nations and see, wonder and be astounded. I am working. I am doing a work in your day. God is not sitting, sitting idly by. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They take other people's stuff for themselves. Two, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. They also will twist justice to their own ends because they define it on their own terms. Their horses are swift and leopards and the fiercer than the evening wolves. And on it goes. In verse 9, they come for violence. Oh, there's been plenty of that in Judah already. At kings they scoff. At rulers they laugh. They laugh at every fortress for they pile up earth and take it. They build siege ramps, and they will take the city. They won't just take somebody's house or somebody else's field. They'll take the whole city for themselves. They're going to do the same kinds of things that have been going on in Judah, the same kind of corruption that Habakkuk has been crying out against. They're going to do it on a grand scale. They've got this and more. But that's the point. God is going to be bringing through the Chaldeans, through the Babylonians, God is going to be bringing against Judah exactly what Judah has been bringing against itself already. Habakkuk answers, God, verse 12, are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. He's echoing Malachi 3.6, or he's saying it ahead of time what Malachi will later say, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O Jacob, you are not consumed. Because God, of God's holiness and his steadfastness, he is the God of Israel. He is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he made promises to Abraham that he has to keep. God, we cannot die. God, we cannot be wiped out. We cannot be swallowed up by Babylon. That can't happen because you have promised. You are a covenant-keeping God. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O rock, have established them for reproof. You are of purer eyes than to see and look upon evil. You cannot look on wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Okay, God, I, I asked you to do something. I want you to intervene, but not in that way. That doesn't make sense of the simple categories. You see, God is good. There's evil. God must bring good. God is actually going to confront that evil with a judgment that brings the same kind of evil upon it. God is going to bring about good, but he does it not through transformation automatically, not just for eliminating the evil and bringing good. He brings judgment to press out the evil, to destroy the evil, to ruin it, to bring it to an end. So God is at work. God is going to work. Habakkuk says, how can this be? There's, there's, there's in a sense, protest number two. Not only how can I trust you if you don't do what 
I expect, but how can I trust you if you don't do what seems right? God is, it seems now God is not doing right in Habakkuk's mind because Habakkuk knows something about God. And he needs to remember more about God. He, he winds up in chapter 2, I'll take my stand at my watch post. I'll station myself on the tower. I'm going to look and see what God will say. What does God have to say for himself I, and how he's going to answer my complaint? I put a good question to God. What's God going to do with this? And the Lord answers. Write the vision. Make it plain on the tablets. Make it clear so everybody will hear. Let them run and tell it to and fro all over. The vision is waits its appointed time. It's going to happen. Behold, his soul, the one who, who gathers up wickedness, is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous one shall live by his faith. Now that phrase is echoed three times in the New Testament. It's huge. It's, it's repeated in Romans. It's repeated in Galatians. It's repeated in Hebrews. The three books that more than any other outline carefully our salvation by faith in Christ. Romans, Galatians, Hebrews, they all grab this phrase out of this obscure little prophet, Habakkuk. This is what we know the book for, that phrase. But it's not merely I'm right with God by faith. I will live in the midst of stuff I don't understand. I will trust and obey. I will live in the midst of what doesn't seem right by a trust in God who I know is right and who I know is sovereign. And if I know that he's good and right and he's also sovereign, then I can trust him even when this doesn't seem to fit my categories. You see, we're, we're, we're living in a transitional time here in our society where, where faith is being marginalized. We were reminded of that again this um, this last weekend, Ryan and I were at that conference, and we, we, heard, we heard a couple of different speakers talking to that. And it's something we've been talking about here already, that, that faith is being marginalized. And it may be that here in the Northwest, which has less of an entrenched churchy culture or faith impressed upon the culture than other places in the country. This will be slower coming in the Bible Belt than we'll experience. We're on the cutting edge. How do you like that? Doesn't that feel great? We are culturally on the cutting edge here in the Northwest of the removal of the influence of Christianity in our culture. Like I said, we're living back in Romans chapter 1. Welcome back to the first century of the church. We're going to experience what that was like, and I'm not, I'm not disturbed by that. I think that's exciting times. It is going to be difficult times, but we're also going to see God working. We're going to see redemption. We're going to see transformation. We're going to see lives changed. We're going to see people's worlds turned upside down. We're going to see God work in the midst of this because the press is going to come. Do you believe this? And yet, and yet it's not going to be easy. It's, it's, it's going to be troublesome times. What, what God describes in his answer to Habakkuk in, in, um, in, in chapter 2 is he, he lists these woes. His judgment upon Judah is going to be echoed in his judgment upon Babylon. And look again what he says. The things that he describes there remind me of Judah. He pronounces a series of woes, a funeral dirge, a woe oracle it's called. Woe to him, look at verse 6, woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. That was happening in Judah. And then Babylon came up and came, came in and does the same thing, and then God is going to hold them accountable for it also. Verse 9, Woe to him who gets evil gain for his own house to set his nest on high. 
to be safe from the reach of harm. Woe to those who would trust in somebody else, whether it's Egypt or Babylon, instead of trusting in God himself. Verse 12, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity, whether it's the city of Jerusalem or the city of Babylon. Verse 15, woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. That's a really confusing phrase. If you take it all the way back to Genesis, chapter 8, I think it is, with Noah and his sons, and there's a shaming of Noah that occurs there, and, and, and it's judged. But if you come forward all the way to the book of Amos, which is just a little bit ahead of Habakkuk, one of the, one of the charges that Amos laid against Israel was that they so disrespected the prophets and those who would take a Nazarite vow against drinking wine, that they would force them to drink. They would force them to violate their vow or their conscience before God. The powers of the, of the society in Israel of that day would force people to violate their conscience in terms of their practice of their faith in God. That's not too far from where we are. So I say that to say that we live in a similar time and we need to know how to live in trusting the Lord, how to trust and obey in a time like this, just like Habakkuk needed to know it. Verse 19, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake, to a silent stone, Arise. Can that teach? It's a condemnation of idols, trusting in something else that cannot deliver instead of trusting in God. But the verse, but the chapter ends... Verse 20, God affirms this, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. God will be worshiped. God will be glorified to the ends of the earth. It may seem like chaos, but the Lord is in his holy temple. And so Habakkuk prays. Verse 2, of chapter 3. O Lord, I heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. And he enters into what's called a theophany. We had theodicy, the question of good and evil with a sovereign God, and now we have theophany, the appearance of God himself. God's appearance and intervention into human history. And Habakkuk is now going to rehearse in one of the best psalms in all of the Old Testament. One of the best examples of Hebrew poetry in all of the Old Testament is not in the book of Psalms, although the book of Psalms does this over and over and over again. It's in this little prophet, Habakkuk. God came from Teman and the Holy One from Mount Paran, and his splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. We don't know what he's talking about then, but he's talking about when God came from Sinai and came to Egypt in power and glory and, his and brought his people out. Several times that, that, that is referred to through the Scripture in the same poetic language. One example of that is when, when Moses is rehearsing this account in Deuteronomy 32. I'll lay that out there, Deuteronomy, no, 33 and verse 2, if you want to look at that later. Also in Judges chapter 5, later on, when God delivers his people from oppression and somebody else was allowed to oppress them for a time because of their own sin that God was purging from them and, and holding them accountable for, and yet, 
And yet God comes from Teman in the same imagery, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand. There's the pillar of fire when he redeemed them from Israel. There he veiled his power. He veiled his power before Moses. Remember, he took Moses and he hit him in the cleft of the rock. He covered him with his hand to veil Moses from his glory so that as the glory of God passed by, Moses would be shielded from it. Moses would only see the the after effects of his glory. He would only see the glory trailing after God had, had passed by to protect Moses from the view of God's full presence. He rehearses times when God was near. In verse 5, before him wept pestilence, went pestilence, and plague followed at his heel. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and he shook the nations. The eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sunk low. The tents of cushion and affliction, verse 7. The curtains of the land of Midian. There's the story of Gideon. The only time when you had a battle in the tents of Midian was when Gideon overtook them with 300 men. The whole army with only 300 men. Was your anger against the rivers in verse 8? Your indignation against the sea? What is he talking about there? He's talking about the Jordan. He's talking about the Red Sea. And the Jordan, there's no way they can enter into this inheritance. Jordan is at flood stage, and yet God stops the river. God walls up the waters this way and that way, and they go across on dry land. There's no way they can get out of Egypt, and Pharaoh's army is coming. God has promised them redemption, but there's no way now. They are walled up between the sea with Pharaoh's army pressing them from behind. And God puts his own glory as the rear guard. And God himself, his own presence, holds off the Egyptians while all that night the water is pushed back. And you know the same story. They they walk across on dry land. God's hand to deliver them when there was no way out of it for themselves. And what this whole passage is doing is over and over again in poetic language, it talks about verse 11, the sun and the moon stood still, Joshua chapter 10. Just after Israel has failed at a little place called Ai, and then they repent, and and then God gives them victory, and then the very next battle they face, God stops the sun in the sky. The day is extended so that the, the victory can be finished. God does the impossible. It says, so the Lord fought for Israel. Verse 13, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed, or for your anointed salvation. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked. Well, that takes us all the way back, folks, to Genesis 3. And you will crush the serpent's head. He'll bruise your heel, but you will crush his head. You will save your anointed one. Your anointed, the Messiah, will not rot in the grave. He will be raised up. And the salvation of your anointed one, your Messiah, will save us. All of this, all of this whole Bible perspective of all that God has done, but not only that, what God will do, is packed into the poetry of this psalm. It's the thing about poetry. There's a whole lot more there than our casual reading lifts off the page. We don't see it, but Habakkuk did. And that's really my point. Oh, verse 14, you pierced him with his own arrows. This enemy that God will defeat through his anointed one, through his Messiah, he defeated him, he pierces him with his own arrows. We know, Paul says in Romans 8, that all things work together for the good 
of those who are the called of the Lord according to his purposes. It doesn't mean all things are good, but God will take even that thing that the enemy intends to destroy you with, God will take it and he will turn it. And that which the enemy intended to use to crush you, God will use to lift you up. God will use to press you closer to his Jesus. God will use to, use to show you something more of his suffering and his love for you. And for all of eternity, you'll carry that deeper apprehension of the love and the glory of God with you. What the enemy would use to destroy you. What the enemy used, intended to destroy Jesus. To end God's plan. What did God do? God used that very thing, the cross of Calvary, to accomplish eternal redemption. Habakkuk is showing us something here. Habakkuk is showing us. The point of Habakkuk's whole parallel is this. We best trust God through trouble we don't fully understand when we prayerfully rehearse God's past, his presence, and his promise for the future. Habakkuk is, is, is rehearsing in, in, with God in this dialogue. He's asking questions. He's getting answers. The most easiest, obvious application of this I can come up with of this. Do you have a quiet time? And what do you do with it? I want to suggest something really simple, which is to make some time at the start of your day. Find a regular place. Do this in a regular way. Make it a habit. A habit of holiness that you open your Bible, you take some time, and you read and pray. Now, I'm not saying first close your eyes and pray and try to think of something to say. And then after you've, you've done that a while, as best you can, maybe you've got a list, and then you, then you can open the Bible and begin to read. I want to suggest something a little bit different. Habakkuk has been rehearsing the history in the midst of his prayer. I want to suggest we do that. I want to suggest we read and pray. I want to suggest if you want to just try something new in that quiet time or establish a habit, if, 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 if really, honestly, if that's where we're at, if that's what we need to do, I need to reestablish that habit, I want to urge you to do that. And do it with an open Bible. And pray as you read. And you read some verses and you, and you think about that, and you think, but yeah, it says that, but God, I don't believe that. God, I don't think that's true. God, I haven't experienced that. You say this, but God, go ahead. First of all, he's big enough to take it. He took it from Habakkuk. He can take it from you, and what will he do? Well, he will rehearse in your spirit with his spirit the answers. He will remind you of himself. Let me give you a, go ahead and jot this down. If you want a place to start this, Start it in Psalm 42 and 43. The two actually go together. Not now, but start this tonight, tomorrow, tomorrow morning maybe. Psalm 42 and 43. Begin reading and just, just pray as you read. Stop and pause. And You know, I love reading the whole Bible in a year. It's a great thing, and, and I want all of you to read through the Bible. But sometimes it turns into just a, a goal exercise. Got my chapters, got my chapters. Okay, oh, I'm behind, I got to press, I got to read this even faster, and we buzz right through there. And getting the overview is a good thing too. You can see things from up high that you don't see in detail. But there's something else about just reading to hear from God. Read and pray. Remember, hear what God would say to you through his word as you prayerfully read it. 
Habakkuk 3 rehearsed God's redemptive works to reinforce his trust in times of trouble. We best trust God through trouble we don't fully understand when we prayerfully rehearse God's past, his presence, and his promise. What I mean by that, past, presence, and promise. His past, the great works that God has done. Habakkuk remembers Exodus. Habakkuk remembers Joshua chapter 10. Habakkuk remembers Judges chapter 5. Habakkuk remembers when Mount Sinai shook, when God shook the mountains of the earth, the biggest, the most immovable thing that anybody could think of. Not unmovable to God. Habakkuk remembered when God pushed the waters back, and they went across on dry land. Habakkuk remembered. Habakkuk could even look forward to the time when the enemy's head would be crushed by his own arrows. Habakkuk could look forward and remember and see the salvation of the Lord's anointed. God would save his people through his person, his son. And Habakkuk looked forward to that in this prayer, and that's what I want to encourage us to do. Prayer is not simply an obligation that we fulfill because God likes to hear from us. It's not like your mother or your mother-in-law that now and again every weekend you better make the phone call because if you don't, you may never hear from her, but you know you're in trouble. God is not like that. No. You see, you have questions. God has answers. The two of you need to talk. That's the point of Habakkuk. God, you have questions. We have questions. God has answers, and this book is full of them. And His Spirit will open them up to you. You have questions. God has answers. That has answers. The two of you need to talk. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is the first and the last. He is the author of the past, the present, and the future. Yesterday, today, forever. Jesus is the same. He is the one who was and is and is to come. And that's how we need to pray. And that's where we need to know him. The God who was, don't forget what he's done. The God who is, and the God who will be. And all that he has promised. It's been said that there are three great neglected tasks in the present age. I I jotted these right across the bottom of your notes if you're looking at those this morning. And that is to confess, to grieve, and to hope. In the midst of a troubled time and a troubled world that doesn't know the glory of God, we need to be doing three things. We need to be practicing three things. We need to practice confession. Habakkuk is asking, why God? We're assuming that by and large, Judah is okay. Israel is okay. His people are okay. Habakkuk himself is okay. We're not okay. We need to confess. And God, in his answers, uncovers that, yeah, Babylon's going to be judged for the same things that are in Israel. What about God's people? What about us? Oh, would your heart be open as you open his word that you would confess, you would accept, you would, conf- you would agree with God, God, I'm not, I'm not merciful like you're merciful. God, I haven't obeyed. God, I, I'm not doing that. God, Lord, I believe. Would you join that, that, that tax collector's prayer? Lord, I believe. Help me in my unbelief. We, in this age, we're part of it. We, we are carried along in these currents in ways we don't even realize. And as God shows us that, do not be hesitant to confess. Do not be hesitant as well to grieve what is. Easily we become too comfortable. We become too accommodating. We accept too well the norms of the society around us that ought to be grieved instead. Be willing to grieve. And grieve Grieve might be at least partly expressed in helping without fixing. 
When somebody's in grief, somebody has endured great loss, you cannot undo the loss often. You cannot fix that. You can't change what is. You can grieve with them. You can help them in the midst of that brokenness without changing the brokenness. Maybe the best way for us as Christians to grieve in this present culture is to get in and to help without fixing. Sometimes our hope is in fixing what we cannot fix, and we will be disappointed. And others will be disappointed in us. But we can help in the midst of what is broken. Joining and coming near in the midst of grief and pointing to a better hope, pointing to a better future. You see, if, if, our, if our effort is, is, is all aimed at fixing what is, we will not be hoping for what will instead be. Because what God will do and what will be is far, far outside the box of what now is broken. My main point is simply this. Tomorrow morning, take this book. Not this, this one's mine. You have your own. And if you don't have your own, there's one in front of you, please take it with you, because tomorrow I want you to open it. And I don't care especially where you open it, I'm recommending, if you're not even sure where to start, Psalm 42 and Psalm 43 is a good place. But open it and begin to Read and pray. Pray and read. You have questions. God has given us answers. He's shown them it's himself in this book. And the two of you, the two of you need to talk. I can't do that for you. The person next to you can't do that for you. You can do it with them, but they cannot do it for you. But the two of you need to talk. Let's do that. Father, thank you, Lord, that you desire us. That you so desire us that you gave your own son. That you have removed our sin out of the way because of him that we can even approach you. We could dare to talk to you. You have put your spirit within us that you can hear us and we can hear you. Lord, I want to ask, Lord, for us as a church family that today, Tomorrow, you would draw us to that place. Each of us. Lord, press it into our hearts. Cause us to hunger for it. As the deer panthers for the water, so my heart longs after you, O God. Make that real, Lord, in this church where it's not. And Lord, we would confess to you this morning that it's not. Lord, make it real. Make that our hunger and thirst for you. And Lord, meet us there. Lord, fill us there. And Lord, in that way, make us what the people around us need to see in us and hear from us.